Hello, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part 12 in a long series called Why I'm Catholic. This one's titled Matthew Shot First. Star Wars nerds, I know you're out there. Star Wars nerds have an argument about Han Solo and whether he fired his gun first in the bar scene of episode four, A New Hope. There are t-shirts that say Han Shot First. Uh, I'm here to tell you of a similar argument, one that has far greater importance and consequence for anyone that believes Jesus is God incarnate, the creator of the universe. This one matters immensely because your spiritual life may depend on how you answer it, and the truth about this matter matters a great deal in the founding of Christ's church. This question is about which gospel was written first, and I am here to tell you Matthew shot first. Matthew wrote the first gospel. He wrote it in Hebrew first before it was translated into Greek, and he wrote it before the year 70 AD. And it was Matthew the Apostle that wrote it, not some random Matthew from accounting or anyone else. So you might be asking, why does any of this matter? But for two centuries, people have been spending incredible amounts of ink to disprove this tradition that Matthew wrote the first gospel. And the reason they've been doing that is because it undermines the Catholic Church. According to sacred tradition, from a couple of people named Papias and Irenaeus and Ignatius of Antioch, all the way to St. Jerome and St. Augustine, Matthew was known to be the first gospel that was written. This is documented in various writings from the Church Fathers. The whole tradition of the Church said, this for nearly two millennia. And for a terrific read on this, check out Brant Petrie's book called The Case for Jesus, which cuts through the last 200 years of fog spewed from a lot of anti-Catholic scholarship and especially atheists, so just anti-Christian in general. For anyone who attended college in the 1990s like I did, if you read The Case for Jesus, brace yourself and be seated when you read that book. Much of what I learned in my freshman year of college turned out to be false. And it's just unfortunate that I can't get a refund from Viterbo University for it. Um, there's also a video series on formed.org of Petrie's The Case for Jesus, if you prefer watching a video, but it's definitely worth a watch. Matthew happens to be the gospel with the most pro-Catholic references, uh, but that is not the only reason I believe it's important to believe that Matthew shot first. Not at all. It is the overwhelming evidence of history and testimony of the early church writers that indicates that Matthew, the apostle, wrote a Hebrew or Aramaic gospel first, and no one batted an eye about this claim until 19th century scholars decided that Matthew, A, didn't write it at all, and B, if anyone wrote it, it was much later, uh, like 90 AD, and C, uh, that Matthew maybe didn't even exist. That's my favorite part. Um, all of Christianity for, for 1,800 years knew that the Gospel of Matthew was written first, hence the ordering that we all learn as children, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in every Bible you'll ever find. That's the order, and the order is for a reason. It's the reason that, that they were written in that order. Until the 19th century, in Germany's culture war, Kulturkampf uh, against the Catholic Church, until then, Matthew shot first. Then, magically, by textual criticism in mostly Lutheran academic circles, suddenly Mark became the first gospel written. And I have much to say about that later, and there's much written about this. But you have to marvel 
you have to marvel at this because when you consider how much Catholics and other faithful people of faith talk about Jesus and things related to Jesus and the Gospels and anything that could possibly even relate to Jesus and things that don't even relate to Jesus and how it relates to Jesus, we are to assume that for 1800 years, no one had really thought about which gospel was written first. And only, only when the Protestant era and the Enlightenment humanism arrived, did the topic finally come up. So all of this time with everyone talking about Jesus nonstop for 1800 years, it just never really came up. They didn't know which one was written first until some guys in Germany started thinking about it. I find it difficult to imagine that the early church members from bishops downward to the lowliest layperson didn't constantly discuss these things just as we do today. Moreover, you have copies of Matthew scattered about the known world in the first and second and third and fourth centuries that all say, according to Matthew, written at the very top of the scrolls, indicating very clearly that the authorship was never, ever in question. Never. There is literally no copy of Matthew, whether it's a fragment or whatever, that does not have his name written at the top, if they have the top, if they have the beginning of the scroll. Further, there is not a single argument in the writings of the early church that dispute that Matthew was written first. When scripture first started being read in the liturgy, the church would still have been almost entirely an oral tradition. In other words, spreading the word of Jesus was not done by handing someone a Gideon's Bible. There was no printing press, and most people were illiterate. So if you wanted to learn about Christ, you had to talk about Christ with others, and then listen, and repeat, and retell, and revisit. And they had a lot of time to talk because there was no YouTube, and there was no uh, TikTok, none of these things. No podcasts were available. They didn't have wordy blogs like mine, where there was far too many words. And Anyway, yet clearly... The copyists or the scribes and the church fathers knew that Matthew existed, that he wrote the first gospel, and that he wrote it first. And so any New Testament that was ever even compiled had Matthew first, and that was not even in question. So it is beyond my ceiling of credibility to imagine that no one during the apostolic era and in the few hundred years following that stopped to ask or discuss with one another which evangelist wrote first or who wrote it, since Matthew's name is at the top of everyone, and that we had to wait some 1,800 years for English and German Protestant scholars to come up with these questions, and then for atheist academics to take the ball and run with it. Now, I can watch just about any fantasy movie or science fiction movie and let my ceiling of credibility be raised to, to accommodate the director's or the author's imagination. But I cannot imagine that no one said, hey guys, which gospel was written first? And I don't have to imagine it because there's so much evidence in actual writings from the church fathers. In addition, the one apostle who most certainly knew how to write, that, was, that is, could write words, and certainly would have known Hebrew, most likely Greek as well, um, was the tax collector, Matthew, who worked in Jerusalem and would have obviously needed to know multiple languages to merely do his job. Um, yet we plant the stamp of doubt upon it and ask, Wait a minute, did Matthew really write Matthew? As if no one ever asked that question. The motive to remove eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life is strong from the atheists because it increases doubt and alleviates their conscience for not believing. On the flip side, moving Matthew to a much later date 
elevates the Protestant argument against Peter as the first pope. In both cases, the church is attacked. It doesn't matter if it's Protestant or atheist. The church is attacked on all sides. It always has been, even from the inside. If you've listened to most of mine, there's a lot of attacks from within the church. It's attacked all the time. How does it keep going? Uh, We'll get to that. But most interesting is that in both naming the author as Matthew and choosing the order with Matthew first, the early church had no motive or reason to lie about any of this because neither the atheism of others nor the idea of future Protestantism much bothered those who were willing to preach in the streets and be, and be martyred for proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The synoptic problem, as it's called, the synoptic problem of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, because they're similar, they're similar parts, that was not a problem until it was a problem for unbelievers and Protestants, especially kings who wanted to have their own form of religion and morality like every other mythological cult that ever got started. Um, Henry VIII, if you follow that story, it is a perfect example of how scripture can be hammered into what a king wants it to be because he wanted to get divorced. Um, It took a lot of energy, money, scholarship, intellectual argument to get divorce, his divorce blessed. And that's exactly what he did. Now, the motives of the apostles, what was their motive? It was evangelism as they were on fire with the Holy Spirit, literally from Pentecost onward. Things were moving at a pace far too fast for these creeping conspiracies, and the word of God was spreading even without them. Because as soon as they told someone, that person told the next, and the next, and the next, and now I'm telling you all these years later. It's worth pointing out that the apostles and the early church fathers didn't have TV, so they had a lot of time to ponder these things, and they knew the scriptures, not to mention Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, far better than anyone alive today. They lived far closer to the oral tradition and the text themselves. And even St. Jerome wrote that he saw and read from the Hebrew version of Matthew in Alexandria. Now, St. Jerome lived uh, several centuries after Jesus, but he wrote that he saw the Hebrew version of Matthew in Alexandria. That's quite a thing to make up out of the blue for someone who would have no motive to say that. Um, It's just a strange thing that someone would make that up. What scholars do with lines like that is find an error in the writing unrelated to the claim and then cast out the author as unreliable. Or they look to the motives and say, this church father was a propagandist for the Catholic Church. So this is classic hitman work. But if that is the case, if that is the case, then this cancel culture of the academics should be applied equally to all modern scholarship, where if any error, and I mean any error, is ever made, really, whoever's PhD, uh, it should just be taken away, if that's the way we're going to, if that's the rules of the game. As for who I would rather trust, I will take Saints Jerome, Augustine, Papias, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch, and Matthew himself over the 19th century anti-Catholics and 20th century atheists. After all, a lot of the church fathers and the apostles died for these proclamations, and none of them, not one, cracked and cried out in the fires or at their beheadings or when they were being flayed, and they never said, you're right, I lied, we all lied. 
they never said, yeah, in the seven weeks after the crucifixion and Pentecost, we came up with this big conspiracy story. And we were going to say that Matthew wrote in Hebrew first and, and that he wrote it after the temple was destroyed so that we could make it look prophetic. And, and actually, Matthew didn't write it at all. It was Matthew from accounting. He wrote it. Yeah. So they didn't hire a ghostwriter. Um, they didn't do any of that. They went to their deaths for a lot of, for all of this. No one was saying that um, no one was recanting any of these things. They go to their deaths. They go boldly without apostatizing or recanting. They die saying things much different than what I just imagined in that scenario. Polycarp said on his way to the fire, 86 years have I served him, meaning Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Another one, Ignatius of Antioch, dragging his change chains spoke defiantly to the roman emperor trajan and he said you are an error emperor when you call the demons of your nation gods for there is but one god who made heaven earth the sea and all that are in them and one jesus christ the only begotten son of god so church tradition even holds that ignatius was the actual kid the child that jesus held in the gospel stories from matthew 18 verses 1 through 5 anyone wants to read that story but the fact that ignatius could have been the kid in that story tells you how close these people were to jesus in other words guys like ignatius of antioch were alive when christ was alive ignatius of antioch met jesus so here's the dilemma here's the dilemma the choice am i to believe a 19th or 20th century scholar who spent all of his time in a library reviewing fragments of paper and letting his imagination soar or am I to believe the testimony of Matthew, Ignatius, Papias, Irenaeus, Jerome, Eusebius, Augustine, and all the others who lived and died in the era when the church was forming and when many were being slaughtered by kings and governors in professing that Jesus is the Son of God? Hmm. I choose the latter. Sorry, C.H. Uh, Weiss. Sorry, Bart Ehrman. It, re it requires more faith now to believe anything that scholars like Bart Ehrman claim than it does to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the thing. These scholars today, in the last 200 years, have sacrificed nothing and only sown doubt. And they have led millions to the death of their faith. You know, it's not difficult to destroy someone's faith. It's actually kind of the default mode of life. However, it is difficult to be in the counterculture and live a life of faith. So people like Bart Ehrman and the others may be searching for truth, but they are doing so in the darkness, willfully choosing to reject God, which is what God allows us to do. He allows us that. Each of us has the choice to turn toward or away from God, and the effort of scholars to spurn God requires that they reject hard historical written evidence in order to produce and uphold their faith in well, nothing. The, but then, of course, they must do this. The, if you're an atheist, you have to do this. When all you have is this world and no spiritual life, it's imperative that you recruit others to your worldview because we all need our cheerleaders, and standing alone in the abyss without God is a lonely place to be, very lonely place. We get to choose our own hell, but some of us, like airmen, want others to choose it as well. Uh, St. Thomas, the doubting apostle, was told, Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. That's in John chapter 20. This is, of course, the great test, the final test. 
the one we get to answer to answer on our deathbed. It's the one that Airman and Richard Dawkins have already answered, or Christopher Hitchens, whoever you like. But some of them could still change their mind. Hitchens can't. He's already passed away. It's the kind of final exam you really don't need to study for, but you do need to prepare for it because how you decide will crystallize your eternal state. Perhaps the most difficult thing for me to believe is that we have several different writings from church fathers which mention that Matthew first wrote a document in Hebrew, but because we cannot find that document today, we just assume it doesn't exist. So here's a newsflash for modern people. Paper crumbles. Time decays paper. And if you don't believe me, go find your grandmother's photo album and take a look. Inspect it. There's this odd sense that if we don't dig up the original draft of Matthew in Hebrew that it didn't exist, when we know full well that paper falls apart and copyists and scribes had to copy and, yes, even translate the text. So there is a reason scribes were called scribes, and that was to copy text so they didn't disintegrate and so they could spread it, the word to the next church. Yet many deny a Hebrew version of Matthew because we haven't found it. But this leads us to the best part, to the very best part, my favorite, the most fantastic and ludicrous thing of all about 19th century scholarship and 20th century uh, academic atheism, which has even bled over into Catholic teaching at universities like the one I attended. You, you cannot make up the next part except that they did make it up. Of all the things that confound me, replacing this Hebrew version of Matthew, we have scholars who invented a fictional document called Q, for which there is no evidence, no scrap, not a letter of, but which is assumed to exist. So we have writings that mention Matthew's earlier writing in Hebrew, which is discarded for this hypothetical document that is not mentioned anywhere and has never existed and will never exist, that takes the place of the Hebrew version of Matthew. We even have St. Jerome saying that he saw that Hebrew version of Matthew in Alexandria. So we have testimony of eyeballs on the Hebrew version of Matthew. However, this fairy Q document has nothing but is treated as if it were the first gospel. So the next time someone tells you that Matthew was written in 80, after 80 AD or um, 90 AD, you should assume that they are referring to the Greek translation of Matthew because there is clearly a Hebrew version of Matthew of some kind, of some format, written long before that, because if the scholars can prove that a Greek translation of Matthew was written after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, and that someone other than Matthew translated it, that's not really a big deal. The point of massive, massive significance is that Matthew wrote first, that Matthew the apostle wrote a gospel, and he wrote it first in Hebrew. He was the only apostle that certainly had to be literate because of his occupation. And even if he dictated the words to a scribe, that's no different than any other author speaking to a secretary that types a memo. You don't say that the secretary or the person sitting at the desk wrote it. It's the person who dictated it. So it should come as no surprise that copies and translations had to be made. And my New Testament college professor acted as if the Gospels had to, A, either fall from the sky or B, to have the finger of God directing the hand motion on the paper, or C, if neither of those things happened, then it was just a game of telephone that only academics and the Jesus seminar of unbelievers could decipher. To this day, 
to this day, some 25 years after college. I am stunned, really beyond stunned, that a Catholic university was teaching and guiding students to read the output of the Jesus Seminar from the 1990s. Okay, I won't go too too hard on the college that I attended, but anyway, um, <clears throat> the same attack on Matthew has been done to the point of insanity on the books of Moses with the same batch of motives, which is to reduce the sacred text to nation-building lies or worse, to deny the existence of Moses altogether, which is what they've done with Jesus as well. So when things like come up like this, you have to look at the motives of the scholars. To quote the dude in the Big Lebowski, who quotes Vladimir Lenin before the dude's stoner mind drifts off, he says, you you look to the person who will benefit and, uh, uh, and in the movie Walter, so it goes like this, Walter Sobchak is swearing like usual, and then the dude says, it's all a fake, man. It's like Lenin said, you look for the person who will benefit and, uh, uh, you know, and then Donnie, thinking he's talking about John Lennon from the Beatles, says, I am the walrus. So if you haven't seen The Big Lebowski, you probably don't need to watch it, but I've watched it several hundred times, I think, in Wayward Youth. Who benefits then? That's what he's saying. Who benefits from this scholarship? that removes Matthew as author, as the first author of the gospel. Who benefits if his writing is pushed back to 90 AD? It's really, really, really simple. Who benefits is Protestants and atheists. And they benefit in very different ways, except in the end, the Protestants don't benefit from this because, well, the church's authority is undermined, which is what the Protestants wanted. But the funny thing about that is in their zeal for undermining Catholic authority, they undermined scriptural authority altogether, because as soon as the finished as they finished their sprint around the track, atheists took the baton and ran so that today people don't even believe that Jesus existed. That's not a good thing for Protestants or Catholics, even though there's more evidence that Jesus existed than probably Julius Caesar. But anyway, now... <clears throat> I can go on for days about this railroading of the Gospel of Matthew, and I probably will. You'll probably hear it again. In fact, I think I'll have a part two. Um, because one of the greatest attacks on the church sustained now for these last two centuries is this effort to force Matthew down from its chronological position as the first gospel. And the goal is multifaceted. The attack has various prongs, but first of all, Matthew's writing clearly elevates the Catholic Church, and most of the scholars on this topic truly hated the Catholic Church, and they still do. Second, removing Matthew as an eyewitness account of Christ makes the miracles seem fishy at best. Hence, you get unbelievers like Bart Ehrman or Richard Dawkins calling it all a telephone game rather than eyewitness accounts of God in the flesh. What's funny is that there is a telephone game happening, but it's among academics starting in the years of the 1500s right up until today in 2023. Third, pushing Matthew's writing to beyond the year 70 AD after the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem makes the prophecy of Christ about the temple destruction seem more like a statement from Captain Obvious than the Son of God. So if we move the goalposts of the chronology of the gospel writers, it has a clear motive, which is to remove the eyewitness nature of the accounts and play up the telephone game nonsense. There's just one major major problem with this and that's some of those early church writings this is from Irenaeus in his writing against heresies he said 
Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Now, Peter and Paul were martyred before 70 AD, somewhere around the year 68. So, was this a vast conspiracy by Irenaeus and Papias and the various other writers to befuddle us all until we were blessed with German scholars and atheist academics? I think the QAnon people have a more plausible conspiracy theory than this one. So who are we to believe? Who are we to believe? Some random professor today who's regurgitating this dogma of Matthew shot second? Or Irenaeus, who was taught by Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John, and John stood at the cross during the crucifixion? Which of these two people are more likely to have known when and by whom the Gospels were written? Here's the pedigree of Irenaeus, who today's random professor has written off as unreliable. Polycarp was a bishop of the early church, a disciple of the Apostle John, and a contemporary of Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp was the teacher of Irenaeus. According to Irenaeus, Polycarp was instructed by the apostles and was brought into contact with many who had seen Christ. He lived from the latter half of the first century to the mid-second century. To the mid-second century, Polycarp was martyred by the Romans, and his death was influential even among the pagans. And that is the man who taught Irenaeus. So, who do I choose? Random professor or Irenaeus? I choose Irenaeus. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with a part two on this same topic of Matthew shot first in the next episode.